Hello and welcome to And Let's Be Heard for Friday, August 25th, 2023. I'm Mike Cachopoli. All right. End of the week. We've made it <clears throat> to the end of another week. Excuse me for the rumpling. I'm eating a, uh, a Rice Krispie treat. A Rice Krispie treat. It's not, you know, if you go to like a really good uh, bakery, sometimes you can get the fresh ones. These are the ones that are, you know, you can buy over the counter. Not as good. Those fresh. There was a, boy, there was a uh, coffee shop in New York City that closed a long time ago. And they had the best Rice Krispie treats. They were just amazing. Freshly made, homemade kind of uh, uh, Rice Krispie treats. So I'm just eating one of these right now. So it'll be a little, little... Is that annoying? Is that annoying? Like in a movie, when the movie's just about to start, or in the middle of the movie, and you hear people opening their candy. I've thought about inventing. I take a bite of this. I've thought about so professional, um, making candy packaging that is uh, uh, quiet, so it can be opened in a movie theater. I don't know if this is even possible. It may be like. One of those like Jackie Gleason inventions on the honeymooners that just doesn't work. What was that invention he made? No cal pizza that never never took off. But I'm thinking maybe just something because you buy the candy at the movie theater, every package makes noise, or they're very hard to open. Right? You actually need like light to find out where the opening is, a little slit is to open it up. It's impossible. So it makes all that noise, annoys everybody, just like the crunching of popcorn in people's mouths. Well, you probably can't fix that. What are you going to do? Popcorn and movies go together. Plus, you know, a, a, a small popcorn here in San Francisco is like $8, $9. So the kind of money they make on popcorn is just insane. It's absolutely insane. So they'll never stop selling popcorn at movies. That's like people talk about them not selling beer at ball games anymore. Not going to happen. Come on. You know, beer is like 10 bucks, 12 bucks now. They're not going to stop selling beer. There are guys that go to these games and they buy five, six, seven beers each. They're making so much money from beer. So they'll never stop selling beer at ball games. Not going to happen. Um, what the hell was I talking about? Why was I talking about Rice Krispie treats? I don't know. I'm trying to make a transition here as smoothly as possible, and I'm not sure I can. But it is Friday, and we'll talk about politics. We'll talk about Trumpy. We'll talk about DeSantis. We'll talk about uh, the mugshot. We'll talk about what's happening from here. We'll talk about some new polls. We'll talk about money. We'll talk about a lot of stuff. At the end of the show, I'll have reviews of uh, two films. One is uh, Liam Neeson in uh, Retribution. And the other is uh, a film about Golda Meir starring Helen Mirren that we'll talk about also. Very small film under the radar. A biopic that's not being promoted anywhere near as much as Oppenheimer. Hardly the buildup that Oppenheimer had 
Certainly not something you need to see on an IMAX screen or 70 millimeter, but packs a powerful punch. So we'll talk about that at the end of the show. All right, where to start? Where to start? You know what I want to start with? It's kind of frivolous, but not really. Is uh, So Trump, Trump does the mugshot, right? And then it gets out that he weighs 215. Okay. If Trump weighs 215, if Trump weighs 215, then I weigh 110 pounds and I'm about 190. There's absolutely no way Trump is a few pounds heavier than I am. There's no, there's no chance. There's no chance. So I started to think about that number. I'm like, well, did they weigh him the way a doctor weighs someone and, and they put out the number? I mean, I'm sure they have a, a scale that works. I'm sure it's, uh, they would not lie about that to help him. As it turns out, no, that's his own number that he put out there. So the 215 is his number that he put out to the press. And we know it's bullshit. Why is everything this guy does have to be a scam? Everything this guy does has to be a fucking scam. Even his weight can't be honest. He has to even fuck with those numbers. Why? Why, was, why does everything have to be a grift, a scam with this guy? Everything has to be a lie. Everything has to be a total uh, distortion of the truth. It's constant with him. But that's what a sociopath does. They do the big lies and the little lies, right? Because it all starts to blend together in their brain their sociopathic brain after a while. They are just liars. That's what they do. So whether it's something like election interference or, you know, installing fake electors, saying you didn't, or saying it's okay, usually justifying what you've done is okay, justifying your crime is okay, or the, you know, paying off of a porn star, so word doesn't get out or telling the government to shove it when they come and get documents that every other president gladly gave back those kinds of things. And then you lie about your weight. You lie about your hair. You lie about your crowd size. You lie about your dick size. You lie about your polls. You lie about everything. A to Z. And that's what Donald Trump is. He's a born liar. And he appeals to a lot of other people who lie. You know, a lot of people just lie. Americans like to lie. We're, li we're liars, you know, and so he um, appeals to that also. 215 pounds. I mean, that's fairly laughable. 215 pounds. I'd say closer to 315, wouldn't you? I'd put him closer to 315. In fact, that's probably what happened. They probably weighed him. It was 315. He took the three out, put a two in. And put it as two of the what's a hundred pounds? A hundred pounds is nothing. Come on, come on, find me a hundred pounds. Find me, I want you to find me a hundred pounds. <clears throat> so, <laughs> God, oh, make myself laugh sometimes. No one else, but I make myself laugh absolutely. So, someone put up a photo of Trump in a big white, you know that white shirt he wears? 
at the uh, golf matches. And that was big white pants. Now, that's because he sees himself as ripped. He does. Because fat people wear black. They do. Fat people wear black. Because black is a good color when you're overweight. It's slimming. White's the opposite. White is, white's unforgiving. It is, it's unforgiving. You gotta be in really good shape for white to look good on you. All white, gotta be very slender, very lean, okay? He's not lean, but he thinks he is, so he wears white. Instead of wearing like dark colors, at least like brown, dark brown. He wears that big white shirt and those white pants that show his voluptuous ass, you know? He um, he shows that off. So someone put a photo of the fat belly and the big ass and said 215 my ass. No, it's not 215. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's 315. I can believe 315. That I can believe. Christie's probably like 415, right? But Trump, I can believe, is 315. But everything's a lie, man. Everything's a lie. You're almost 80 years old. You can't tell the truth about your hair. You can't tell the truth about your teeth. You can't tell the truth about your weight at almost 80 years old. No one cares. No one cares. To be vain at 80 is fairly disgusting. I find, I'm 52. Uh, I find people my age who are vain are disgusting. But to be vain at 80 is absolutely grotesque. And that's what he is. He's vain at 80. Vain at 80. Sounds like a song. Um, you know, we talk about electability, right? I talk about electability a lot. When I make the electability argument, I don't believe it's even an argument. It's black and white, okay? It's black and white. Trump can't win a general election. And that's why I say, well, whether you believe he's guilty of all these crimes or not, whether you believe he's guilty of zero, 50, or 100, doesn't matter he can't win a general election. It doesn't matter. It, it, there's no bearing on a general election. He can't win a general election. The only bearing it would have is if he was convicted before the general election. But once again, it doesn't matter. He couldn't win even if he wasn't. So it, that doesn't even really matter. He can't win a general election, whether he's convicted or not before the election happens. So that's the whole point here. And this whole idea of, well, I believe, let's say I'm one of those people who believe that all the charges are frivolous and we need um, we need revenge. We can't let them get away with this. You're not going to get away with it by getting Donald Trump elected. He's not getting elected. So that's not the way you're going to get your revenge. This whole idea of he's we're going to show them. We're going to show them. No, you're not going to show them anything. The only thing they're going to do is show you that Trump will lose to Biden again. That's it. That's the only thing you're going to get out of it is uh, more embarrassment because Trump will lose again to Joe Biden again and a Joe Biden that's four years and uh, 4,000 brain cells worse than he was four years ago. So that's the only thing. That's the only thing you're going to get out of it is more embarrassment. Trump cannot win a general election, period, period. So today there's a new poll. And it said that 67%, 67% of independents believe Trump committed a crime. 67%. So two 
out of every three independents think Trump committed a crime. He can't win. Two out of every three independents, independents make up 50% of registered voters. So half of the registered voters in this nation, two out of every three of them think Trump committed a crime even before he's found guilty. So you can imagine how those numbers will go up even more after he's found guilty. This is what I'm saying. Trump cannot win a general election. Now, yeah, 67% of independents don't even want Joe Biden to run again. Two-thirds of independents say they don't want Trump to run again. So let's put these numbers together. 67% of independents think Trump committed a crime. 67% of independents don't want Joe Biden to run again. 67 do you see the theme here? Two out of every three independents don't want Joe Biden or Donald Trump anywhere near the presidency again. So the question is, why are we supposedly, according to the mainstream media, inevitably headed towards Biden and Trump? And are we or are they trying to fix the game, rig the game, promote their own narrative that's not reality? Once again, we see the mainstream media trying to create their own reality the way they do with climate change, the way they did with COVID, the way they continue to do with COVID, and with this election. Nobody wants either of these guys to run again. They don't want them. In other words, two-thirds of independents want both of these guys out of their lives. Out of their lives. I know what people are thinking. I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking, well, Mike, okay, the same amount of independents don't like either. So Trump could win, right? Let's say it's a push. Let's say independents are a push. All he needs to do is get Republicans out there more than Democrats. Well, ah, ah. Because Democrats make up a slightly higher percentage of the voting bloc than Democrats do. Republicans make up a slightly bigger voting bloc. So that's a dangerous game because Trump can't win because Biden is more likely to win some Republicans than Trump is to win. Trump is not winning Democrats. So you're not getting any Democrats that are going to cross over to Trump. But you will have some Republicans of the anti. Remember, there are those, there are very few pro, pro there's no real pro Trump Democrat groups, but there are plenty of anti Trump Republicans, right? So they're going to vote for Joe Biden. So once again, at plus, here's the difference you'll have one guy in Biden, the Democrat, the independents don't want to run again, and one guy in Trump. But one of them will have four indictments and maybe some convictions and one wand. So when you look at the independents, they're going to have to make some kind of a decision, right? And that's going to be with Joe Biden, not Donald Trump. As they did last time. Joe Biden wasn't particularly doing well with independence last time, but he still beat Trump by 7 million votes. So once again, 
you could twist the numbers, get the math any way you want, turn it around, turn it upside down, look at it right side up. Trump cannot and will not will not, will not win a general election. That's the bottom line. So here's my point, if you haven't figured it out already. To talk about Trump as being president is insane. It's insane. He cannot win. He will not be president. It's certifiable to believe that Donald Trump can win the presidency. It's also crazy to think that you're going to get some kind of crazy revenge through Donald Trump. Once again, if you want revenge, if you need revenge against Democrats, you're going to have to get it through someone other than Donald Trump. I'm the person who's best suited to bring you that, hey, name of the movie I'm reviewing later, Retribution, is Ron DeSantis. He's the person who has the best shot to win a general election, to beat Joe Biden or Gavin Newsom. Boy, Newsom. I mean, I think Biden would destroy Trump, but Newsom would annihilate him. Very dangerous. But your best shot at getting any kind of retribution and saying, fuck you to the Democrats. Now we got the presidency and the House and the Senate is through Ron DeSantis. That's it. Otherwise, you're going to hand the Democrats the presidency again and the House and the Senate. And what kind of revenge is that? Seriously, what kind of retribution is that? doesn't exist. It's not going to happen. So there's no path to victory over Biden or Newsom or anyone with a D next to the name for Donald Trump. And as I said yesterday, well, MAGA, MAGA, look at that crazy Trump mean looking mugshot and love it. Independents, especially independent women voters, look at it and say, ew, no thank you. That's from uh, Bill Mitchell. Yes, absolutely. That's what I said to that crazy Marjorie Taylor Greene yesterday when she put out that mugshot and said, this is what's going to win the presidency. Well, no, it's not. Because independents, especially women, look at it and say, "Uh uh-uh, no thank you. So actually, that mugshot is more towards him losing the presidency than winning the presidency, right? Look, Trump's going to jail. Talking about him being president at all is certifiable. It's like a uniquely American kind of stupid. It's just not going to happen. So we talked about a bit of money yesterday, right? Yesterday's show. Who's making money and who's not making money? Well, <laughs> a DeSantis group is putting $25 million into Iowa and New Hampshire. $25 million into Iowa and New Hampshire. 
Is that is that a good amount of money? You think? What do you think about that? How many groups are putting twenty five million into New Hampshire and Iowa for Trump? Nobody is, because Donald Trump is broke. Donald Trump is broke. His money's drying up, and any money he gets from his cult supporters, who you know. Can hardly afford to put food in their own table, but they'll give him ten dollars, twenty dollars for his defense fund. Is going towards his defense fund, not campaigning. So he's broke. He has no campaign money. While Ron DeSantis is rolling in the dough, and the money he's actually making is going towards defense. I think Carol Markowitz said, "I, I like I like a candidate who uses who uses campaign funds, his contributions for campaigning." That's what I like. I like that too. I like a candidate that uses their their funds for actual campaigning, their contributions for campaigning, not for their own criminal defense. So, the fact that the fact is that Trump is broke, using whatever money he has left for his own defense. DeSantis has tons of money, and is actually going where it should be going, to his his campaign. And we see more and more of these groups. Never back down is a good one. Never back down is fantastic. You should really follow them on Twitter. Never back down. They're 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 incredibly good. But they're all coming out and putting money towards this. Now these these packs like Never Back Down, they're funded primarily by big money donors. That's why DeSantis's packs are doing much better than Trump's because the big money donors are giving. To Ron DeSantis, that twenty-five million, a lot of that's coming from bigger donors. They are giving to Ron DeSantis. They're putting their hard-earned money behind Ron DeSantis. They're not putting it behind Trump. Article after article, story after story, shows how broke the Trump campaign is. That's one of the reasons why he's not campaigning. You see, he doesn't have the money to campaign. He doesn't have the money to do what DeSantis is doing. Around Iowa, New Hampshire, he didn't have the money to do those rallies anymore. He's got to hope for charity that someone with a big venue will back it, and that's not prevalent. It's not going to happen very often. So, the money game, Ron DeSantis is winning full on, head on, head full steam ahead, full steam ahead. There's not even close. And none of the other candidates. So Vivek is getting some contributions, but using a lot of his own money. Um, and DeSantis is actually getting the contributions, not just from the big money donors, but also from regular folk, right? Which became a big thing with Bernie. You know, before Bernie, no one cared that much about that. You know, those five dollar donations, those ten dollar donations from regular people. That became a big thing. With Bernie Sanders, and now that's the thing to do. Yes, you can get your money from your PACs and your big donors, but you also have to show that you have individual donors, right? Heck, even the debate format now, in order to get on the stage, you have to have a certain amount of individual donors. Now, individual donor can be one dollar. Remember, that's why they do this campaigns. They'll say, "Just give a dollar," and people think, "What the?" F- What's gonna dollar gonna do? Well, it shows another person as an individual donor, and those individual donors count 
towards getting on the debate stage. So that's become a big thing since Bernie, SB, since Bernie, the individual donor. So DeSantis has plenty of that, but he also has these big money people who gave to Trump in 2016 and 2020 and are now switching to him because they don't want to see, one, their money go to Trump's defense. They want it to go towards campaigning. That's what they do, these people. They give to campaigns, not to defense funds. And they know that DeSantis is the better candidate come a general election, that Trump can't win a general election. That's the ultimate point. They don't put their money in this just to get a primary win. They want a general election winner. And they know Trump can't win that. So they're not giving their money to him. It's pretty simple, right? This is all incredibly obvious. Incredibly obvious. I mean, this is NBD again. Never back down. Uh, once again, throwing $25 million into Iowa and New Hampshire. These are huge ad buys that Trump can't afford. Wasn't $30 million, 25 or $30 million, the like, um, total amount he raised in the last quarter or so? Or this year so far? Something like that. So he doesn't have any money. And the money will dry up. This is why I keep on telling people, and they think I'm crazy, that Trump's not going to make it to January 15th. He's not going to make it to the voting. One is money. And two is, he'll see that DeSantis is going to win, and he doesn't want to get embarrassed. So he'll drop out and blame others. That's what he'll do. He'll drop out, and he'll blame others. But he doesn't want to get embarrassed. I don't think he wants to lose one state to Ron DeSantis, let alone several states to Ron DeSantis. And certainly, people will say, well, Mike, he lost Iowa to Cruz and then went on to win. Yeah, but that was before he was president of the United States. He was just candidate Donald Trump in his first ever primary. So that's not the way it is now. He's the, Remember, he's inevitable. He's putting out all these polls that show him winning, including Iowa. So this, this Trump can't afford to lose Iowa the way the 2016 Trump could afford to lose Iowa because Trump wasn't expected to win in 2016. Now he is, you see. And... He's telling everyone it's a done deal. So if he loses Iowa, that done deal narrative goes out the fucking window. So he can't afford that. So when he sees that he can't win Iowa, he's going to drop out. That's what he will do. You heard it here. August 25th. August 25th, almost five months before the voting in Iowa. You heard it here. Remember you heard it. And then come back and give me credit. Because that's what's going to happen. There's a great article written. Well, actually, there's something else I want to go to first before I go to that. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the fake Ramasmarmi Farmer Swampy. I want to talk about the fake. You know, I don't even know his real name anymore. <laughs> I keep on calling it by these. <laughs> oh, I forgot his real name. I thought, what's his real name? Oh, Rama, Ramaswamy? Is that his real name? <laughs> I forgot his real name. Anyway, so I said yesterday, yesterday or the show before, that I don't care if he came from a, a, a you know, a low-income background. He can still be, 
have become a spoiled rich kid. Well, as it turns out, just like Joe Biden, just like Donald Trump, all he does is lie. And he was not uh, poor when he was a child. In fact, he graduated from an incredibly prestigious uh, high school. And his parents, one was like a psychiatrist. <laughs> so this whole bullshit narrative, right? Um, this whole bullshit narrative that he came from these, you know, this this uh, uh, poor family is bullshit. One of his parents was a psychiatrist. The other was a lawyer. Okay. He already had a stock portfolio when he graduated from an elite private high school. So at 18, right? So his claims that he came from no money certainly clashed with that uh, prep school upbringing. Once again, he's a liar. He's a liar. This is what we've always had this thing of sociopaths running for political office here. But I think Donald Trump had really set the precedent that any kind of sociopath, any kind of habitual liar uh, can run for president and, and actually have a have a shot. In other words, not be laughed off the stage, if you will, the metaphorical stage. And uh, that's what's happened. So now you get people like this guy of a fake and uh, just lies about everything, lies about everything, knowing that the Trump cult is so dumb, so ignorant, so ensconced in the cult, they'll believe it. They'll never challenge it or, or they don't even believe people who bring up truths, right? So that's what he's doing. So everything about him is fake. Yeah, there's a lot fake about Biden. We've talked about that. The guys, how many times have I called Biden a, a half century liar? He's been lying for 50 years. He lies about what happened, how his son died. He lied about his past. He lies about his things he's done, teaching that he's done, that he hasn't done, home fires that never happened. He lies about everything, up and down, up and right, marching Mandela, everything. So he's a liar. Trump's a liar. The fake's a liar. Can't we, like, think about um, electing someone who's honest this time? Can we think about someone? What what if, what kind of lies have they caught DeSantis in? I haven't found any. Nothing about his accomplishments, nothing about his past, nothing about what he's done. Nothing. They haven't been able to do, to prove anything hasn't been truthful because he is truthful. The same way those Republicans couldn't attack him on that stage because his record is beyond reproach. It's a truly conservative record of accomplishments. And in a Republican primary, no one can attack him unless you're going to do what Trump has done, which is attack him from the left, attack him from the left. There was a, a story, I wanna correct this, that I believe I saw on Fox News about two weeks ago or a week ago. And it said that uh, Ronda, uh, Gavin Newsom was instructing the legislature to do something where, you know, maybe block Trump from the general election ballot. And that story turns out to not be true. And it's not true, I think, for, for a couple of reasons. One is that the, the, um, the California Constitution says if someone wins a primary, they must be printed on the general election ballot unless they die like uh, two months before the election. Hell, that's even possible with Trump. But that's the only way Trump would not be on the ballot here in California. Plus, why would Newsom bother? There's no way Trump, there's no way Trump would win California, and he didn't, without 
any indictments, let alone four. So he, why would Newsom even bother going that going down that political and constitutional minefield when Trump is going to get annihilated? Plus, he wants to see Trump win the primary anyway. Why would he want to put any landmines in his way? So that makes sense. But that brings up something else. In the story that was written about this correction, they talked about how actually Newsom's people were quoted as saying, no, the governor has no problem with Donald Trump. He had a great relationship, especially during COVID. So this is, once again, Trump quotes Mehdi Hassan, the crazy left-wing MSNBC talking head, Branch Covidian. He quotes him on COVID stuff. He kissed Newsom's ass. For the whole year he was in office during COVID, he kissed Newsom's ass, praising him up and down. They were buddy-buddy. Newsom admits it. His people admit it. We had a great relationship with the president during COVID. Instead of doing what he should have done as a true leader, what Ron DeSantis did as governor of Florida, which is annihilate Newsom, use that bully pulpit as president to go after his uh, draconian COVID mandates and lockdowns. And he didn't. Once again, proving what a failure Donald Trump was on policy as well as all of his lies. A true, total failure. This leads me to this little video. This is it's nauseating, but it's only 90 seconds. This is 90 seconds of Donald Trump taking full credit for the uh, lockdowns. We did the right thing. We closed the country down, could have kept it open. And I could have done what some countries are doing. I had to shut it down. We did the right thing. I thought of keeping it open. And we did just the right thing. We closed it down. And a group of very smart people walked in and said, sir, we have to close it. And we did the right thing. They can't do anything without the approval of the president of the United States. Even the Democrats aren't blaming me for that. We had to close it up. Some people wish we never closed it down. We did the right thing. We closed it. It's a decision for the president of the United States. And we did the right thing. We had to close it up. Because nobody's ever heard of closing down a country, let alone the United States of America. We had to turn off the airlines. We had to turn off everything. And we did the right thing. A lot of people have thought about it. Write it out. Don't do anything. Just write it out. And think of it as the flu, but it's not the flu. It's vicious. We basically shut down our country. But oh, we did the right thing. We had to close it down. The president of the United States calls the shots, and we had to close it down. We did the right thing. They're not working in offices. They're not in airplanes together. And we did close up. We had to close it up, and we did the right thing. We closed it down. We did the right thing. We closed it up. We were told we got to shut it down. Stop it. Tell everyone to stay home. Because of this horrible virus, and we did that. We had to artificially close our country. We've done this right, and we, we really, we really have done this right. That we did the right thing. Everything we did was right. <laughs> so that's 90 seconds of Donald Trump talking about how great the lockdowns were, and that we had to do it. There was no other choice. Well, there was another choice, because there was a guy in Florida named Ron DeSantis who didn't do that. And uh, proved that that was the right way. Other countries like Sweden that didn't do that. And now we know that the lockdowns in this country were incredibly destructive, incredibly destructive. But what this also shows is what a, another liar Trump is, because he's trying to say that DeSantis wanted everything locked down, close the schools, which is, of course, not true. We have Trump talking over and over again about how great the lockdowns were. We had to do it. There was no other choice. And I'm very happy. And we did the right thing.
So once again, Donald Trump may not understand that we have the receipts, that we have the videos, that we have all of this, but we do. We do. And the fact of the matter is, he knows, see, the thing he knows, yes, we have all this evidence, we have all these facts, we have all this evidence, but his cult doesn't care. It's like those three monkeys, what was it, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. They don't care. They don't care. This is why I call it a very dangerous cult. And it is the, people sometimes get mad at me. On Twitter, they get mad at me all the time. They say, oh, this is not really a cult. There are other... No, it is. It's the textbook definition of a cult. When you have the leader saying, I am dying. I am being persecuted for your sins. I'm your Jesus Christ on the cross. And they believe this. And anything they say is okay. Anything they do is okay. They can contradict themselves. They can be hypocritical. It doesn't matter. The cult leader is never wrong. It is absolutely... 100% a cult. And so he knows that it doesn't matter if he lies. It doesn't matter if this video proof that he's a liar and a hypocrite and a scumbag. They don't care. And they'll never care. The hope is that there's some other people that care. That maybe some of these people in this cult can be, uh, can be deprogrammed. I mean, that's the hope, Right. But this goes hand in hand with his relationship. Oh, sorry. This goes hand in hand with his relationship with Gavin Newsom. He has such a great relationship with Gavin Newsom because they both believed in these draconian COVID lockdowns. They were hand in hand with the draconian COVID lockdowns. And the, 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 pain that this has caused and will continue to cause is probably something that we won't know totally for about 10 years, the destruction this has caused, because it's allowing people to come back now and start talking about this stuff again with other so-called variants, right? And the fact that they're putting out a new um, booster next month, and they're talking about, they're putting mask mandates in place in some uh colleges and uh, hospitals and such is that this stuff has not been squashed because you have the president of the United States, the former president of the United States continuing to push this stuff, right? To push the, the, the false words, the, 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 the bullshit of, 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 of Mehdi Hassan or Tony Fauci or continuing to talk about how great the the vaccine was, and lying, and lying, and lying. So the damage that Trump did with the COVIDianism is, uh, in itself, that is a cult, right? It's a weird thing that you have these this COVID that that the COVIDianism cult and the Trump cult kind of meet in this way, right? With this guy who simply but he doesn't want to admit he did the wrong thing and that Ron DeSantis did the right thing. Jay Bhattacharya put out uh, some zero COVID people are apparently appearing on some propaganda show on MSNBC saying that school is bad for kids and so closing schools was good and maybe we should keep 
schools closed. He's stunned, it needs to be said. School is good for kids. Covidianism is a cult. And it is. But what did uh, Donald Trump say? We closed the schools. Glad we closed. Hey, a lot of kids don't want to go to school. They're very happy. That's what he said. And the Media Sancho is a total propaganda outlet. Total propaganda outlet. And Trump continues to quote Mehdi Hassan on COVID. He just did a couple of days ago. Just did. And yet, that's the funny thing. Well, it's not because it's a cult. The Trump cult doesn't see that they are agreeing with the COVID cult, right? That they're meeting with the COVID cult on this stuff. They're so anti, supposedly anti, all of these COVID mandates and such as they back a guy who continues to push them. And they don't care. So you have to just believe these people have no morals. They have no ethics. They have no true beliefs. Their belief is in a person that's a cult. That's a cult. Period. Former Iowa GOP cult chair, uh, Cody, Dr. Cody Holford says he decided to endorse DeSantis after watching that debate. Let's see what, uh, so what Cody says. And as a lot of the candidates got into a back and forth about things that most people really don't care about, there was one candidate that stood in the center of the stage, stood strong, and spoke about the issues Iowans cared about. He talked about leadership. He talked about what he's going to do to deliver and fix the problems that our nation faces. And I sat there with my wife and kids watching that debate and made up my mind that night that I was going to come out and endorse Ron DeSantis for president of the United States. So there you go. So that's a big one there. This is DeSantis talking about, once again, reiterating what he said about the about the cartels our, when he's president wide open you know we do have pieces of a border wall but it's mostly wide open but with the places where there are the wall they actually cut through the wall and they just come right in when i'm president if they are doing things like that and breaking into our country with uh, fentanyl that's going to kill our citizens we're going to shoot them stone cold dead they are going to be done and we are not going to put up with this anymore okay so there you go once again uh, here's another clip uh, of Ron DeSantis. This is at a uh, an event uh, in Iowa. We want your support uh, in in uh, in January for the caucus. If this election is about a candidate like me, who's a proven leader, got a proven record, has served this country in uniform, and I'm out there every day holding Joe Biden accountable for his failures and showing the American people that there's a better way that we can. Re- to decline the country, we're going to win across the board. And it's not just going to be me, because this is a team effort. It's going to be Congress. It's going to be U.S. Senate. It's going to be state legislatures. All these things, I think we can have a historic election. But if the election ends up being about what happened in the past, if it ends up being about you know personalities and, and other things like that, well, then Biden is going to be able to sit in his basement again not have to justify his record, 
And I think he's going to get away with it. And I think Republicans are going to lose. So this is our choice uh, to put our best foot forward um, and, and do it in a way that, uh, that the issues in the election that should be front and center should be the issues you care about that affect you, your family, and our country's future. If we're discussing anything else other than that, then we're just playing into the Democrats' hands, playing into the media's hands, and they would like nothing better uh, than to see Biden be able to waltz in again uh, and continue uh, all the destruction that we've seen. So I will be the guy to be able to get the job done, both in the election and then starting January 20th, 2025, uh, buckle your seatbelts because we are going to be active. We are going to be uh, very forceful, bold. We're going to lead, uh, and we will reverse the decline of the United States of America. Thank you all. God bless. So, yeah, these are you know, these events in Iowa that you have to hold, and uh, it was a pretty good one. And so that's more of what I've talked about and what DeSantis talks about, where if we make this election about the past, about the election, about the insurrection, about 9-11, about all this nonsense of the past, that's what Democrats want. They don't want to talk about the issues of the present. And so when you talk about candidates like Donald Trump, you're talking about he's constantly talking about it's constantly about martyrdom, about the past, about the election, about uh, how the, he was wronged. That's exactly what the Democrats want us talking about, which is another reason why they want Donald Trump as the nominee, because they know it'll be about the past. It won't be about Biden's failures now. It won't be about moving forward to the future. And what Ron DeSantis says exactly what you're going to get, which is why Democrats don't want him to be the nominee. Um. Yeah, I, I think that I had mentioned uh, Carol Markowitz earlier, and she had made a statement about how she likes her candidates to actually use their money, uh, contributions for campaigning and not for their defense funds. Today, she was on Fox Business earlier, and she talked about Randy Weingarten um, and why he doesn't like Ron DeSantis, why she doesn't like Ron DeSantis. Let's remember why Randy Weingarten hates Governor DeSantis so much. It's because he defied her and opened schools during the pandemic. And it wasn't just school year 2020. She tried to get schools closed in Florida for school year 2021. So, you know, I, I think that her lies, her absolute lies, because none of that is banned in Florida, is based on her not having control. And if Republicans were smart, and that's a big if, they would hold her accountable by pressuring Democrats to sever their relationship with her. There she is posing with President Biden as if she didn't just destroy an educational year for millions of children. So I think Republicans should really decide what they want to do here. And they need to go strong against her. They should look to Governor DeSantis for some lessons. Let's remember. Well, that's why- it. That's that's right there. You know, obviously, once again, as Trump was saying, we closed the schools. It's great. We had to. The kids are happy not to be there. We know the destruction that caused. And Ron DeSantis opened the schools in Florida, which is why Randy Weingarten hates him so much. She likes Trump a lot more than she likes uh, Ron DeSantis because Donald Trump did exactly what she wanted, exactly what she wanted when she wanted, which is to close all the schools. Um, let's see if there's any of the clips. There were some interesting clips. Uh, oh, yeah, Trump seems to be uh, upset that... Uh, that Ron DeSantis is in Iowa playing playing ball with his kids. Maybe that's because Trump throws like Tony Fauci. Remember Fauci when he threw out that pitch? 
and it wasn't anywhere near it. He threw like a girl. He threw like a girl. Sorry for all the girls out there who can actually throw. But maybe that's why Trump, he's so fat. We know 315, not 215, can't uh, play catch. So probably never did in his life with his kids. And so that bothers him. It really, really irks him to see Ron DeSantis in, uh, in Iowa with his uh, family. That's, uh, that, that's bothersome to Donald Trump. Um, Kemp of uh, Georgia came out and declared Trump the loser of the debate. And uh, what he said was uh, he lost because he wasn't there, basically, <laughs> when it comes down to. Um, he says everybody there was a winner because they've gotten in the race, takes a lot of guts to do it. He said, I think the Trump campaign is making a big mistake by not being there. They're my loser of the night. Uh, he said, you get complacent, you get into prevent defense, try to start spinning stuff, all the stuff, instead of just simply answering tough questions like everybody else is behind us going to do tonight. Because you know damn well there's going to be some tough questions. I think, like, if you're as good as you say you are, get your ass on there, answer the questions, fight it out, get it done. That's just my opinion. Look, I'm not saying this because I've battled this with Trump. He's been mad at me. I haven't been mad at him. But that's just the way I think. There are many times... The Chicago Bills were up big, right? But Jordan never left at halftime. He always showed up. The biggest mistake in politics uh, you can make is, is taking a vote for granted, which is true. There's a lot of other people that the former president doing the right thing here. I'm just telling you my opinion. We'll see how this plays out. So, yeah, it's obvious. Look, you know, Trump feuding with Kemp. Trump feuds with anyone who doesn't uh, kiss his ass uh, 24-7, 365. And remember, Trump backed uh, Purdue, Sonny Purdue, who got destroyed by Kemp in the primary. And then Kemp went on to uh, win that election, right? Beat Stacey Abrams handily without Trump's help. Um, and all the candidates that Trump endorsed lost and the people he didn't endorse, like Kemp, won easily. So... This is more proof of how, how Donald Trump is, uh, is poison. He's electoral poison. He is. It's just the fact of the matter. His candidates lost big in 18, 20, and 22. And, of course, he lost in 20 also. So he's a loser, and his candidates end up losing, not necessarily because they're bad candidates. Sometimes they might be, but his touch is, is poison. It's the opposite of the Midas touch, right? Um, so... This this is all, once again, I could throw as much evidence and facts out there, constantly telling everyone what a bad candidate Donald Trump is and how he can't win. But it won't matter to his cult. I understand that. I do understand that it won't matter to his cult. But these are the facts. These are the facts. See, there are certain facts. And they are... You can't come on this show and try to distort the facts. You could have your own opinion, but you can't have your own facts, right? The facts are Donald Trump cannot win a general election. Ron DeSantis can. Proof is in the polling. Proof is in what happened in 2020. Proof is what just happened in 2022. Over and over again, we have more and more evidence of this. Fact is that Ron DeSantis has tons of money and Donald Trump doesn't. The proof is that Donald Trump can't campaign. He has no energy and he has no money. He can't run ads because he has no money, right? Story after story talks about how broke he is, how he's using all of his money for his defense funds. So he has no money to campaign with. 
So these are the facts. Donald Trump can't win a general election. Ron DeSantis can. Ron DeSantis has money. Donald Trump doesn't. These are just facts. Like the sky is blue, like the night is dark. These are facts. If you don't like them, that's too bad. But that's what the facts are. So you can come on and say why you love Trump, why you don't like DeSantis, but you can't come on and try to make up facts that aren't true, to lie, to distort. It just doesn't, not going to work with me. It's not going to work. Look, there's more and more debate about whether, you know, Donald Trump uh, can be uh, kept off of any ballots in any state come a possible general election. There are some that say yes. There are some that say no. Obviously, it would go to courts and so on and so forth. But, 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 I think that most Democrats probably wouldn't push so much for that. They might try in, in swing states that have a Democratic governor or a Democratic secretary of state, so on and so forth. They might try a Democrat-led uh, legislature. They might, but they might not because they know he's such a weak candidate. Like Just like Gavin Newsom, they may decide, what, what's the point? He's such a weak fucking candidate. Why even bother going down this, you know, political and constitutional judicial landmine, just uh, landmines, you know, uh, 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 just don't worry about it because he's not going to win. I mean, that's probably more likely, right? But there's also the possibility they can do that. And that's another problem that, that a Donald Trump could face, that a Ron DeSantis will not face. Period. Once again, that's just simple truth. That's simple truth. Donald Trump faces that possibility. Ron DeSantis does not face that possibility. Period. Um, well, it's getting kind of late in the show. Maybe I'll, this is not, I wouldn't consider this, well, I want, let me just read something and then I'll get to this slightly, slightly, slightly more. Uh, well, what do you want to talk about first? What do I want to talk about? Do you want to talk about Europe? Yes. Okay. So uh, <laughs> there's something I want to talk about after I talk about this, which I say is not really funny. I don't think it's funny. It's about Melania and Donald. And I don't, once again, I don't think it's funny stuff, but it's just something that people are talking about and, and should talk about and would talk about, right? If it was anyone, let's suppose the Trump people would talk about it if it was Ron DeSantis or anyone other than Donald Trump. But there's a great article written on Fox today uh, by Nicola Ketty said the Ron DeSantis Florida blueprint can also save Europe. Europe is already turning to Ron DeSantis' accomplishments as a blueprint. Think about that. Europe turning to the governor of Florida. Here we go. So uh, Governor DeSantis has proven himself to be bold, self-disciplined, and capable. His reputation has reached European shores, and his successful governance has piqued the interest of many. Leaders throughout the old continent are already turning to what he has accomplished in Florida as a blueprint for Europe. Supply-side economic principles have once again turned out to be a recipe for success in Florida, just as they've been during Reagan administration. Tax cuts, deregulation, balanced budgets, incentives to invest, 
hire and produce have resulted in unemployment rate of only 2.5% as of December of 2022, the lowest since 2006, a labor force growth of 3.5%, more than double the American national growth rate, and an increase in the overall population. Freedom, prosperity, and expanded opportunities are the natural consequences of the traditional conservative policies that President Ronald Reagan brought into the mainstream, empowering individuals and families to fight for what they believe in, their customs, traditions, and communities. On the cultural side, he has not shied away from fighting against a new reincarnation of the old foe of civilization, communism, wokeism, and cancel culture are two notions that do not manifest in society as a need of the many, but rather an imposition of the few for political and financial gains. In front of this top-down forceful imposition, the silent majority remains often alone. Few are the leaders who stand up to what constitutes as madness. The left throughout its history has tried in various forms to segregate people into groups antagonistic with one another and impose upon them the necessity to turn to the state for salvation. By presenting the governmental machine as the only entity capable of keeping a society together, the left increases its powers and influence immensely, effectively controlling many aspects of everyday life. The right, on the other hand, lets the wisdom accumulate over centuries, tradition, family, community, guide the individual instead of the state guiding the, uh, the individual. By exposing the modus operandi of the left, Governor DeSantis has shown ideological clarity, discipline, and immense political will. Historians and unbiased observers notice the same traits in Reagan's fight against communism. It's exactly this fusion between supply-side economics and cultural common sense that's the key to his success. In Europe, we can distinguish and appreciate the Florida model better because the economic model of the European Union suffers from the opposite policies applied in the Sunshine State. I've highlighted on many occasions that Europe's been laid low by a heady brew of bureaucracy, overregulation, overtaxation, debt. A crisis of political leadership has in turn produced a deficiency of bold, innovative ideas, a shortage of vision, and a huge expansion of government intervention. The entire EU economic model is based on cheap energy obtained from Russia and low input costs used to create high quality products exported to the world. The model was aided by extremely and unnaturally low interest rates, which had the effect of increasing structural imbalances and debt, while the tax burden remains elevated and the economy as a whole centralized. In all effects, Europeans have become addicted to government and quantitative easing with individual freedoms at the mercy of bureaucrats who have the same propensity as their American counterparts to enforce wokeism, cancel culture, and green policies for which our economies are simply not yet ready. Government interventions and, and uh, Kenyan, Kenyanism, Ken, Kenyan, Ke, what word is this? Anyone know this? Oh, okay. oh, Keynesianism, sorry. Keynesianism <laughs> produces only secular stagnation that's almost like rama fakey rama rama swami rama, rama smarmy former swami kenyanism produce only secular stagnation and erosion of individual freedoms as we are seeing federally in the united states with trillions of don dollars in packages approved by congress that are not translated in growths or new jobs the same was observed during obama administration which ended with a one percent 
growth rates, while the following administration's supply side policies produced the best economy in decades at the supposed end of an expansionary period. In Europe, between 2014 and 2019, the Juncker plan uh, 439 involved 439 billion euros on investment projects. The return that huge debt finance package was a mediocre 0.9% uptick in the bloc's GDP and just 1.1 million extra jobs. Currently, the EU is plagued by stagnant wages, slow growth, and inflexible labor markets. The Florida DeSantis model applied in large scale in the United States would give the world superpower a much needed boost boost economically and socially, and perhaps could serve as an incentive for Europe to reverse its declining path and ensure the balance of power remains in the West for decades to come. So basically, uh, I think this is more like, as I read through it, although I'm not in Europe, so I don't know. This is more like hope that Europe will do the Florida model. I'm not sure how much proof there is that Europe is, is doing it, but this writer seems to believe they have Nicola Ketty has uh, believes that they have be- begun to look at the Florida model as a way to move ahead in the future. So that's interesting, right? You would never think that Europe would follow Florida, but that's how popular and what a great job Ron DeSantis has done with the, with the economy there. All right. As we maybe head to some lighter stuff, I hope we go to the film reviews. The question has been asked, where is Melania? Where's Melania Trump? So now there are all these, look, we don't see, we see Ron DeSantis' wife, Casey, and his family everywhere with him, right? Everywhere. We certainly know Jill Biden takes Joe by the hand and guides him everywhere. Where is, this is just commonplace that you see candidates with their wives on the campaign trail. Now, we also know that Donald Trump is rarely on the campaign trail anymore. But where's Melania? We don't even see her anywhere. We really don't. And once again, I think that the Trump supporters would be pointing this out if Ron DeSantis's wife was not there, right? Or if Jill Biden just disappeared. But because it's Donald Trump, they don't, you know, it doesn't matter. They don't go, who cares? They actually don't even like Melania for some reason. So uh, we don't know where he, where she is. And now there's rumors that they're getting a divorce, that they're separated. And remember, During his first campaign and his time in the White House, Melania was a regular at engagements. We saw her all the time. Sometimes she didn't seem incredibly happy to be there, but she did, you know, what wives do, what the first lady does. She went to his events. Insiders claimed the couple were living at Mar-a-Lago, but their paths barely cross. Some reports claim Melania is focusing on raising uh, Barron, who's 17. I can't believe he's 17 already. Above all else, there are also rumors that Melania is considered divorcing Donald and negotiated her prenup uh, with him once they moved into the White House. Um, When Donald was first faced with having affairs with porn star Stormy Daniels and Playboy model Karen McDougal, sources say Melania was unsurprisingly not happy. Melania is no different to any woman. Having a husband accused of cheating on her, not just once, but twice, is extremely disturbing. There's little wonder people believe it's not just a criminal court Trump is heading to, but possibly a divorce one, too. Um, so this is another case of where is she? Where is she? You know, look, I, I can't imagine. Remember, she didn't really want to live in the White House, as the article said, when he was president. So she moved back to New York. 
I can't imagine she's very happy he's running for president again um, because there's no chance she would live in the White House again. But we know why Donald Trump is running, because he needs money for his uh, his defense fund. So that's what he's doing. You know, that's it. So he, she probably said, OK, you need money for your defense. You you do the you run. But I'm not going to get involved and I can't blame her at all. Why would she want to be part of this? Why would she want to be part of this? But once again, it's just it's the hypocrisy of the same people who would like these these look these people are supposedly family values, right? These this Trump cult where family value could we're real conservative Republicans, which is of course bullshit. But we believe in family values and the family unit, and then of course who cares where where his wife is? Who cares where Melania is? Where obviously, if it was DeSantis, they wouldn't stop talking about it. They'd be making fun of it, right? So that's the hypocrisy there. The continued hypocrisy of the uh, of the Trump cult, continued hypocrisy. Let's see if I can. There were also some other. I think there might have been a couple of other clips I wanted to play. Um, let's see. Let's see. Hear that? There's the fire engines going as everything burns. Here in San Francisco, the way it usually is here. Oh, a total disaster here. It really is. Uh, yeah, well, here's um, another. This is Pete Snyder uh, on why. And who's Pete Snyder? He's CEO of Distributor Capital, co-founder of Virginia 30 Day Fund, founder of New Media Strategies. Okay. And he was on Fox Business talking about why he felt DeSantis did so well. Now, this debate was really the start of this 2024 campaign. I mean, we are in inning one, uh, heading into inning two. So this thing is really just getting underway. Fox had an unbelievable audience, what, 12 and a half million voters and Americans looked at a stage that for the first time in six years wasn't dominated by Donald Trump and looked at that stage and saw someone who looked presidential and had a clear vision for America in Ron DeSantis. So uh, you're right. What he did in Florida is a shining example of what can be done in America. And you and millions of voters are going to hear more about that in the weeks ahead. Now, Pete, OK, so that's was- uh, basically. Yeah. So he's a yeah, he's disruptor capital founder and CEO, Pete Snyder. So once again, that's also someone who I'm sure is part of like giving fairly big contributions to DeSantis or never back down once again. A lot of these same people probably supported Trump in 2016 and 2020 and have new moved to Ron DeSantis. There's only so much money to go around, right? So these big money people who have given to to Trump in the past and now have moved into DeSantis, moved DeSantis, there aren't that many big donors around, right? So that's a big problem for Donald Trump, okay? It's a huge problem for, for Donald Trump. Yeah. This is an interesting tweet, and I want to talk about this for a second. That tough guy face that Trump made in his mugshot instead of a smile, which I thought he would do. It's funny, I'm seeing others saying the same thing. They thought he would just do a shit-eating grin with his fake white teeth, and they didn't expect this kind of brooding look. And I said, in his head, he's probably thinking, this is my tough guy look. And, you know, I'm going to fight you look. Um, And someone brought the fact that this is the same tough guy face 
he made for his presidential photo. It's so phony. One can see right through it to see the fear in his eyes. Honestly, Trump would be a lot more likable if he could just be himself. Well, I don't know about that. I understand, but I think himself is a is a is a scumbag. So I don't know if that would be likable. But in terms of being something he's not, so but that's it. That's the same thing. That's like Trump doing his. I don't know if this is like method acting thing. Once again, I'm going to put on a a performance. I have a performance in my head. I'm trying to convey something with this look, right? That is kind of not real. And that's a problem. That's one of his biggest problems is that he's always putting on that kind of performance, whether it's that or a WWF kind of performance at a rally. That's the thing. I'm this fake tough guy kind of deal. And that's that most people who aren't in his cult can can see through. And I think that was just as that person tweeted, exemplified by that mugshot. Also, Ron DeSantis raised, this is how broke Ron DeSantis is, huh? He just raised over a million dollars in the 24 hours following the debate, okay? And also got 20 new state-level endorsements. So, and look, the polls he shot up, once again, I don't take the, I don't take polls into consideration that much. But what I do take into consideration, the endorsements and the money. And so 20 new state-level endorsements after that debate and a million cool in 24 hours. So he's, he will not have any problem with money. To talk about money is kind of ridiculous because DeSantis isn't going to have any problem with money at all. He's just not. He's not. Someone brings up that Trump has a floor of about, we're talking about real numbers, a floor of about 30% of the GOP. That's about it. That's it. He can't go any higher. Uh, and they're only Trump voters. So it also benefits Trump to have as many people in the race as possible to accumulate delegates. But when Ron wins Ira, others will drop out. Uh, once it drops to one-on-one, DeSantis wins easily. But I would also add my own little thing to that, which is, as I said earlier, I think Trump will drop out before Iowa. When he knows he's going to lose Iowa, when it gets into his head, when people start telling him he's going to lose Iowa, he'll drop out of the race. And have some other excuses. I mean, well, there are many excuses he can come up with now, right? If you like polls, I'll do this. I'll talk about them a little bit here. That DeSantis, his net popularity increased by 0.6, plus 6. Ramaswamy, not Ramaswamy, come on. Ramaswamy's net popularity went down uh, minus 9. He dropped 9 points. And the second worst drop was Trump in popularity at seven points. So think about that. So DeSantis and uh, Farmer Swampy were at the debate. So DeSantis went up six points. Farmer Swampy went down nine, which means people felt DeSantis did well and Farmer Swampy didn't. But Trump dropped seven points. He wasn't even there. So why did he drop seven points for not being there? Which that's, that's proof right there. When you drop seven points, and you're not there, it proves that you should have been there, that it was the wrong decision. Do you think Trump would have dropped more than seven points if he was there? Well, is that the computation there? Well, he's not very, uh, you know, uh, secure, is he? If he doesn't think he could do better than that if he were there? Pretty insecure, pretty much a loser, huh? If he thought he dropped by double digits, if he actually showed up in only single digits, if he didn't, I'm not quite sure that's the case because 
the Trump cult would have watched the debate and they would have been more interactive in these polls. And I don't know. He might have dropped. He might have dropped a few points. But would he have done worse than Pharma Swampy? I don't think so. I really don't. But the problem is, is that we're having a debate a month at least, right? So can he afford a five point, five to 10 point drop, let's say with each poll over the next five months? Of course not. When you look at that, do you advise him to get in the debate on September 27th? I would. Doesn't mean he will though. So uh, the net favorability rating among Republicans who watched the debate, according to uh, what poll is this? I don't know, interactive polls is that DeSantis went up six points. Scott uh, Haley went up the most, 13 points, but she's still behind DeSantis. I thought Haley did well. That's what I thought, and this is reflected. Christie went up 13 points, but still behind DeSantis and Haley. And I, it, aren't those two people? I told you DeSantis, Haley, and Christie did well. And according to Republicans who watched the debate, they did the best. Um, Trump went down seven points, Ramaswamy went down nine, Pence went up seven. Pence went up seven. So he he conducted himself well also, and I thought he had also. Um, so everyone went up except Scott and Ramaswamy, uh, Farmaswampy and, so and Trump. So only Scott and Farmaswampy were the only two candidates on that stage that went down. I'm not quite sure Scott did. I thought he was fine. I'm not sure why his popularity went down. But the, the, the best popularity right now, the net favorable rating among Republicans, okay? DeSantis is now at plus 47. Scott is actually right behind him at plus 42. Haley plus uh, 39. Farmer Swampy plus 37. Trump plus 24. Uh, and the only two candidates who are, have a negative rating is uh is chris christie oh i see christie went from minus 38 but still at minus 25 <laughs> and pence went from minus 19 to minus 11 so they still even though they both went up they still have a negative uh net favorability the only two candidates with a net negative uh favorability okay so yes desantis did very well in this once again he's the front runner and he had a plus six from that debate favorability rating went up by six points. So once again, take what you will out of these polls. One good thing, which is real, real numbers that we can count on is that almost 13 million people viewed that debate. That's really good for a debate. The first debate that's still in August, still in the summer, still before Labor Day, 13 million is, is really a good number. So a lot of people tuned into that debate and there'll be more people tuning in, I believe, after Labor Day, once people start paying more attention to this and the summer's over. So that's a real number. That's a real number. Um, and Trump and his campaign people and his surrogates keep on pretending that 230 million people watched his Tucker interview. That did not happen. He had 230 million impressions, views. That has nothing to do with people who watched the whole thing. That's how many times that tweet of the of the interview on Tucker Carlson's feed came up on your feed on Twitter. <laughs> it doesn't mean people clicked on it. It means it just came up on their feed. And if you don't 
if you have Tucker, if you're following Tucker Carlson or you know people who are following Tucker Carlson and retweet the tweet of the interview, it comes up on your feed. And every time you go on Twitter, you open your app, you go on your laptop and it comes up on your feed. That counts as another impression and view. This is how insane this whole thing is. Trump is trying. <laughs> to, I mean, once again, I, I, I love my podcast. I do a great podcast. People do listen, but I'll get 2,000 impressions. I'll tweet out the the podcast, and I'll get 2,000 impressions every day when I tweet it out. That doesn't mean 2,000 people listened. It means maybe 50 people listened. Understand? It's a very small percentage of your impressions of views that actually watch a video or listen to a podcast or watch a podcast. <laughs> But to try to pretend that in a country of 330 million people, the 230 million of them watched that interview when only 7% of GOP voters are even on Twitter. It's insane. What that mean? How many 10-year-olds watched it? How many 10-year-olds are included in that? It's so silly. And they know it's a lie, but they do it anyway. Very few people watch that uh, who aren't in his cult. Yes, his cult came out and they watched that ridiculous soft-pedaled interview on par with what kind of ice cream do you like, Mr. President, when they interview Biden. But who cares? Those people are going to vote for Donald Trump anyway. Very few people, very few people who aren't already in the Trump clan cult side watch that. But 13 million people did watch the Fox debate. All right. Any videos I want to? No, I think. Uh, let's see. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll just wrap that up. Um, what Steve Deese, what he writes, the views are very high, two hundred and fifty million impressions, but the actual engagements just point zero eight percent of the views have retweeted the video. Just point zero zero seven percent of the views quote retweeted and just 0.3% of the views like the video, just 0.03% of the views have bookmarked the video. So which also means that people who watched it didn't even necessarily like it. You know, we also know that people who hate Trump watch his stuff as much as those who like him, if not more. I know people like that who can't get enough of hating him. So that wouldn't matter either. They're not going to vote for him. They just watch the video. All right. Uh, I have to see if uh, if my friend is John Williams is ready to play me in because I have a couple of uh, a couple of film reviews that I want to get to. Uh, John, are you, they've been setting up. I know I talk, I talk, I, I know I talk too much. I know John, I get it. That's my job though to talk. If other people aren't going to talk, I have to talk. But they're ready ready to play me in, John. John Williams, you gonna you gonna play me in? Okay, yes, okay. Okay, John Williams and the Boston Pops. Thank you very much, guys, as always. All right. All right, so the first film I'm going to be reviewing is Retribution, starring Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson, who 
really found this niche huh of playing the tough guy later in life the the hero the anti-hero whatever it may be later in life and uh here he is again playing uh this time he's playing the regular well i guess he always kinds of plays he plays regular guys with special sets of skills right i have a special set of skills but um in this film he plays like um this wealthy guy right he's into stocks he's like you know one of those uh hedge fund guys who rips people off but he has a nice family not really getting along very well with his wife and his kids don't have much respect for him and they think what he does is kind of thievery and so he's that kind of a very very wealthy got a beautiful home you know and he's in the stocks business and and uh we know how shady that can be is it basically a bank executive in you know but gets involved in you know as bank executives do uh in selling their commodities sometimes in the shady ways so that's that's his background basically but he's a he's a guy who's basically very busy and he decides he's going to drive his kids to school before he goes to work and so he gets in the car and his kids get in the back. And as he's driving, he gets a phone call from someone, you know, with a um, a fake voice, you know, one of those computer voices telling him that there's a bomb under his seat. And not only that, he's placed the bomb under seats of other cars of other people who, who work with him, right? His colleagues and such. And as the film goes on, we see the guy blows up some cars and, uh, the whole thing basically is, you know, if you think of remember the, remember the movie Speed, um, where they were, it was a Sandra Bullock, right, and Keanu Reeves, and there was like the bomb in the bus, and it had to, it couldn't go under a certain mileage, it couldn't go under 55 miles, although it would explode, and so basically we're getting the same kind of plot here, where there's a bomb under his seat, he can't get out of the car, if he gets out of the car, the bomb will explode. He's told if his kids get out of the car, the bomb will explode. And the person who put the bomb there and is instructing him to do certain things, which culminates in transferring some money, can also detonate it remotely with a cell phone, right? So there's our story here. So Liam Neeson has to try to figure out who the hell this person is who's doing this, what he might have done to him financially in the past, right, that may have caused him to do this thing. And how does he get out of it? And how does he get his kids out of this situation? For a while... The first 20, 25 minutes, as the film sets this plot up, it's it has some tense moments uh, that kind of work. Liam Neeson is great. Once again, most of it takes place in his car, so he's got a lot of close-ups of that Liam Neeson expressions, his very serious expressions. And for a while, we're thinking, maybe Liam Neeson can carry this, but he doesn't. In the end, it's really kind of just a this cookie-cutter thriller we've seen this done before like in film like speed that have done better than this speed was great because it kept on adding these other elements to it right which built the suspense up this doesn't really do this it's really one note there's a bomb he can't get out of the car gotta try to figure out who's doing it the guy seems to be framing him and there's so many holes in this the framing of liam neeson has a big part to do with the holes in this and the way the police think that he is doing all this stuff when he's trying to convince them there's someone talking to him they can't hear doing all this it doesn't really make sense one of the biggest plot holes is quite of obvious just from me explaining this to you which is if liam neeson was doing all this 
why would he put a bomb in his own car <laughs> under his seat and under his kids' seats? It doesn't seem to <laughs> that doesn't seem to register with the police here. That that doesn't that doesn't jive with the idea that this guy is doing all this and that he's totally telling the truth. But there are many many holes like that, and the film stops too often. You see, when you have a film like this with a lot of holes, the best thing is is just keep going so the audience doesn't notice it. But it 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 stops too much, and we think about these holes, and it doesn't keep its momentum going. Once again, the plot is so thin, it's so one note that it doesn't really carry all the way through, and it it just seems like something as you're watching, you're like, oh. We've seen this done before and done better. And we've seen Liam Neeson better, in better films anyway. He tries his hardest. So it's called Retribution. It starts Liam, it stars Liam Neeson and Matthew Modine and uh, M. Beth Davids as his wife. His kids are Jack Champion and Lily Aspel. And uh, I don't recommend it. I'll give it two stars because thumbs down because we've we've seen this all before and we've seen it we've seen it better okay so that's that one all right now we're going to move on to a whole different genre here golda so this film is about uh, uh golda Meir, and it stars uh it stars uh helen mirren as golda Meir. um I didn't know much about Golda Meir. I really, I really didn't. Um, and I had looked in, a little bit into him because I, I was two years old during this time period, right? The early seventies. Um, you know, and I know people will have mixed feelings about this film, right? Because you talk about Israel, right? And it talk, it, it really focuses on three weeks in 1973 when they had the uh, the the the, the uh, war with uh, with Egypt, right? Um, and Golda's being the prime minister and how she dealt with all of that, basically, right? And it was, it's basically called the Yom Kippur War, right? It lasted about twenty one days, and I know this is a war we don't talk about much. You don't hear about the Yom Kippur War. I never heard of the Yom Kippur War. Once again, I was only two years old, but also it was only three weeks long, about three weeks long. Um, we know about the, the 48 six-day war, and then this film also focuses mostly on 1973 and the, uh, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the Yom Kippur War. And there'll be people who just don't like it because it, it firmly takes the side of Israel. Now, it's also very anti-war. Um, it shows the the uh, the intense moments in those twenty-one days that Golda had to go through. the The tough decisions she had to make, whether it was firing first, which they didn't do Israel, as we know. We know that she decided not to start the war, not to fire the first shot. And that kind of led to things going downhill for Israel in the war for a while before they got it together and were able to uh, do uh, an incursion uh, into uh, uh, Egypt, right, and, uh, and end the war. But of course, there were some negotiations. We have uh, an appearance by um, uh, uh, 
Secretary of State, what's his name? Why am I why am I losing it? The Secretary of State there. Uh, I'm losing it for some reason. But we have oh yes, Henry Kissinger. Henry Kissinger, of course. Why did I forget Henry Kissinger's name and why? Oh yes, okay. So Henry Kissinger obviously gets involved also, right? Because the United States always involved <laughs> in, uh, in with Israel and their trials and tribulations, but also the the Nixon administration and their uh, they didn't want to get too involved, right? Because they also had relations with Egypt, right? So they had they had good relations with Egypt. They had also relations with Israel. So they they really wanted a a peace negotiation. But Golda Meir knew that they had to uh, uh, Israel had to take a stand, right? They had to take a stand. They couldn't just have peace negotiations and let and let Egypt do this again in the future. Feel they 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 had the right to do something like this. She had to take a stand. So he also wanted Israel to be recognized. That was a big deal back then. Israel was not even recognized as a real uh, uh, state. Uh, and she wanted that to happen before there were any peace negotiations as well. So there's all of that. But most of the drama takes place. Uh, uh, and, and Lee Schreiber, by the way, does a good job. Very understated as Kissinger. We've seen some, you know, maybe over the top depictions of Kissinger in the past. Very understated. Well done. But this is really he Helen Mirren's film. This is this is a film about those 21 days and what Golda went through, both physically, emotionally. She was also very sick. She's a chain smoker, um, you know, the kind of smoker that lights up one cigarette as they're just finishing the other cigarette. And that's part of the film is all these cigarettes and the packs of cigarettes she goes through while she's also dealing with lung cancer. <laughs> the, you know, so there's the oxygen in one hand, and the, and the cigarette in the other. So there's a lot of smoke-filled cigarette, cigarette smoke-filled rooms. She's constantly lighting up a cigarette. That's a big part of the film. It's a big part of the atmosphere of the film, right? Are these smoke-filled rooms um, uh, and all of, and Golda and all of her uh, soldiers and her confidants trying to figure out how to avoid uh, losing the war to Europe. And the film, as the film depicts, they came very close to losing that war. They, they, they came very close to being totally dominated in that war uh, by Egypt. And uh, you'll, you'll know some of them. I, the only one I recognized is, is uh, Moshe Dayan, Moshe Dayan, right? The, the Minister of Defense, played by Rami Uberger, great, as someone who doesn't really have the, uh, the self-confidence that you might need for such, a, for such a position and actually has a, a nervous breakdown about halfway through the thing and Golda has to has to take charge but this is Helen Mirren's film she truly resurrects Golda now what I'm afraid of is coming on the heels of Oppenheimer people are going to see this as a very you know uh, a small minute film Oppenheimer's three hours it's on the 70 millimeter IMAX this one is an hour 40 minutes a lean mean hour 40 minutes not widescreen not 70 millimeter i don't want it to be lost how good this film really is once again people are going to have their political problems because this film puts us firmly on gold to the side firmly on gold some people are going to have a problem with that that it's not broader but that's not the point of this film it's not to give a broader view of the yom kippur war to give all sides of that event it puts us firmly Every scene, she is in nearly every scene. 
the close-ups of her face, her graying hair, her wrinkles on her face. It's all about Golda, my ear, and what she went through emotionally in those 21 days. We see Golda always writing down the number of, of, uh, of soldiers that die in her little notebook, always writing the number. Every time they tell the number, she writes it down. We see one of her secretaries who has a, a son in the war and the effect that took on her. So this is really a very good anti-war film because we see through Golda Meir what a leader has to go through in making these kinds of life and death decisions and the toll it took on her physically and emotionally. And Helen Mirren does a fantastic job, fantastic job of letting us feel that. And uh, so... Once again, the object of the film is to be a very intimate portrait of Golda Meir and that 21-day period during the Yom Kippur War, and it does a fantastic job of conveying that. It's a small film, but it's a very powerful film. And Helen Mirren doesn't just play Golda Meir. She resurrects Golda Meir. She is Golda Meir. Uh, the person I saw it with didn't even know it was Helen Mirren, and he's a big Helen Mirren fan. Yes, there's a lot of makeup, but she, once again, it, it doesn't. It, it's not just an imper it's not an impersonation. It's not even a performance. It's a resurrection. That's how good it is, and we really understand what this elderly woman. I mean, she was in her what mid to late seventies at the time. All right, we look talk. About, <laughs> that's the funny thing. There's a scene in the film where she tells her confidant. Uh, her assistant, who's more like a family member to her than just a, an employee, that the first sign you see of dementia, please tell me, because the ass kissers aren't going to tell me that, right? And uh, kind of laugh about that, because we appreciate a leader saying, look, any sign of dementia, tell me. I, I need to know about this. So here's someone the same age of Donald Trump or, or, or Joe Biden going through this very, very difficult 21-day period and steering Israel through it um, and getting to the other side and getting to the, the what we knew became the, the peace negotiations, right, of 19, 1977, I believe it was. You know, so once again, if you, it's a very intimate portrait. It's about her, what she went through, what Israel went through in that 21-day in that period. And Helen Mirren is, is, just, is just so good that she puts us, you know, firmly on Golda Meir's side, but also lets us understand the, the, uh, the stakes when it comes to someone who has to make these kinds of decisions and the toll it takes on them, but certainly took on her. You know, we can't, I don't know if we can say the same for every leader, but I think you'll have a, 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 a a different view of gold in my ear if you have one of her of her now whether it's positive or negative or or indifferent i don't think there'll be any kind of indifference after this film but uh once again it's it's it, it's focus is laser sharp it's on a woman and three weeks time so it doesn't have the you know that broad appeal uh, like a biopic like oppenheimer has right it doesn't have those incredibly you know, huge theatrical moments. This one is much more claustrophobic. It takes place in her offices, her home, in the war room, basically those three major locations. Every once in a while, Golda goes to the roof, the roof, 
of her uh, of the offices and uh, and has a smoke. And so three or four times the film takes us onto the roof with her as she tries to escape for a while and get some air and, of course, smoke a cigarette. And that's the really only escape we have from the, uh, you know, the, the claustrophobic feel of the film. I really loved this. I really did. I thought it was incredibly powerful. Um, uh, hour and 40 minutes. Uh, I was I found it gripping the entire time. I think Helen Mirren should get an Oscar nomination for this. She's, she's fantastic. She carries the film from, from beginning to end. And once again, if you can appreciate that, that the film is about a very specific time and a very specific person, then I think you'll love the film also. It's very, very powerful. And once again, a, a fantastic performance from everyone in the film, but especially from, uh, from Helen Mirren as Golda. So I highly recommend, thumbs up, four stars for Golda. It's a, it's a great film. And it can be used as a, even as a companion piece you know, to Oppenheimer, where you have the, the big, bold biopic that has the incredible ambition and tells many stories in three hours. And this one, which is more just laser focused on a very certain time period and a, one very particular person. And I think it's very, it's really, really worth, it's, it's really worth seeing. Uh, it's, it's, we always talk about war films, how all films about war are anti-war. But this one does such a good job, it really does, of, of, of highlighting, uh, you know, that war is indeed hell. And, you know, um, the tough decisions that these people have to go through when deciding which way to go and uh, how to best negotiate these, uh, these situations. So that's, you know, I, I don't, once again, people will say it's, Maybe it's pro-Israel, too pro-Israel. You know, obviously, that's not really a concern of mine. When you see, when you understand that a film is focused on a, on a very particular narrative, right, and what it what it's trying to do, and uh, I don't think this film is trying to be a at any point trying to be a fair assessment of all the sides of the situation or the war, the Yom Kippur War in itself, but the effects it has on the leader um who was kind of like a a grandmother you know kind of they was talking about leaders you want to have a beer with well this film and Her helen mirren's performance makes us want to have some chicken soup with golda my dear uh who was a very uh a tough woman but also uh i think it's that grandmotherly nature of hers that the film depicts so well why this kind of a war and these deaths had such a profound effect maybe someone uh, like her at that point of her life which may not have been the case if she were 20 or 30 years uh 30 years younger uh so i highly recommend golda okay so recommend golda don't recommend retribution okay uh that's the week i want to thank everyone for listening remember this show airs weeknights 11 p.m pacific 2 a.m eastern time so which means i'll see you on the other side of the weekend on monday night everyone have a great weekend okay uh but until monday night this is mike atropoli reminding you that your influence counts use it <laughs>